0: We're in our fourth week, the final of the Four Foundations. Before we launch into the fourth foundation, since we've uh, been working with the other three foundations of mindfulness, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of feeling states that are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, and then mindfulness of mental states that um, include thoughts and emotions and the way that the mind is colored by greed, hate, and delusion. That's what we've talked about for the the previous three weeks of the month. Does anybody have any questions regarding any of those that you've been working with so far before I extend it into the fourth foundation? It's all totally clear. Oh, excellent. (laughs) You've all been practicing all your foundations. Um, This fourth foundation of mindfulness is often a little bit more... um, uncertain to many people as to what it refers to, because we spend a lot of time in meditation retreats and instructions giving instruction in the first three foundations. Be mindful of the breath, be mindful of posture, when mental states arise, notice that, work with desire and aversion, notice if it's pleasant and unpleasant. Those will all be familiar meditation instructions. But it would probably be less familiar to hear meditation instructions on the fourth foundation. This fourth foundation is sometimes translated as the contemplation of mental objects, or the contemplation of categories of experience, or categories of phenomena. What it really means is is being mindful of our experience in its context. It's about contextualized experience. It's about being aware of the function of mental states, not just the presence or absence of mental states. It's observing how our experiences occur, arise, and interact. How does a desire function as a hindrance? And we worked with desire in the previous Foundation of Mindfulness, being um, Aware of the presence and the absence of desire. But in this foundation, we would be aware of its hindering function, rather than just its presence or its absence. How does faith function as a spiritual ally? How do the various factors of enlightenment arise? And how do they affect the mind? How is it that they support the practice? So this foundation of mindfulness asks us not just to notice what's present and note it, but to start to see how what it's doing in the mind, how it works. This is sometimes asking us to, also a translation would be, seeing the Dhamma as the Dhamma, or contemplating the Dhamma in the Dhamma. This foundation of mindfulness asks us to extend our mindfulness. It's quite a... Um, expansive and broad category. And sometimes when you hear talks on the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the teachers run out of time towards the end of the talk, and you know there's only like two and a half minutes left, and we've only just gotten to the fourth foundation. So we quickly say, Dhammas, that's all things. Everything else gets lumped into this category. And actually, it's true. Everything does get lumped into this category. There is nothing that's excluded from the mindfulness of Dhammas, the fourth foundation of mindfulness. But it adds this extra angle of function, which is so important. So we're not just seeing the arising and passing of experience, but we're experiencing our experience with clear comprehension, so that we see the functions, the contexts, and the interactions, the cause and effect of mental states. This foundation of mindfulness is sometimes a sticky one to give talks on too, because it's a list. It, it's the fourth of a list of four, the four foundations of mindfulness, which includes other lists. So if you were to read the part on the Satipatthana Sutta discussing the fourth, fourth foundation, it would say, be mindful of the five hindrances, the five aggregates, um, the six sense bases and their objects, and seven factors of awakening and the four noble truths, and how we know all these things. So that's a long talk to just go through all those lists and to start to explain each one. You could, like, this could be like a year, every single Thursday, just to get through the list of the Fourth of the fourth Foundation. How many people here have heard a talk on the um, five hindrances? Okay, what's the first? I want to hear them.
1: Craving.
0: Craving. craving one. Desire. Craving. Second, second hindrance. Aversion, yes. Aversion, anger, hate. It's sometimes translated different ways. Third. Doubt. Doubt. Okay, doubt, doubt is one. It doesn't come third, but that's okay. We don't have to do it in order. So we've got, we've got three so far. Doubt. Doubt. Okay, there's two more. Sloth and, Sloth and torpor. Okay, good. And? Restlessness. Okay, great. So you guys know the five hindrances. Okay. Has anybody heard a talk on the five aggregates? The five skandhas? Oh, not as many nods. Oh, I see a nod. I see a couple of nods. Okay, tell me. We don't have to do them in order. What do you get? Form. Form, okay. What's the next one? Okay, i give you a hint. It's exactly the same as the second foundation of mindfulness. Feeling, Feeling. yes. <laughs> okay. The third? Okay, you don't know this list so much. Perception. Mental formations and consciousness. Form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. When these experiences come together, we have a complete experience of something, and very often, if it's affected by clinging, we create a sense of self. I am experiencing this touch. So there's form, there's feeling, there's perception, there's mental formations, and there's consciousness. Okay, then there's um, the six sense bases and their objects. Actually, it's the perception of the six sense bases and their objects. What are the six sense bases? Eye. Okay, great. Now, actually, this goes a little further. It goes eye form and eye consciousness. Okay, what's the next one? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Ear sounds (laughs) and ear consciousness. The third? Come on, give me some help. Touch. Touch, okay, tactile Um, objects, tactile sensation, and um, body, and the consciousness of, yes, thank you. What else? Smell. Smell, yes. And it's consciousness, yeah. And? Taste. And? And mind. Okay, great. So you know, the, you know these. You know most of these. Okay, so this is like a little quiz, you know, a pop quiz. See if you've been paying attention to your lists. Um, seven Factors of Enlightenment. What's the first? Just guess. Tranquility. Tranquility is one, yes not the first, but we don't have to do them in order. Just get anyone. Okay. Concentration. Yes, it's in there. Yes. Yes. Rapture, joy, delight, bliss. Yes. Oh, actually Winston's a great one, but it's not in this list. But it's a good one to always guess. Okay. Another. Equanimity. Yes. Yes. See, often the lists, they'll have one or the other. So if, if, if wisdom is wrong, go for equanimity. If equanimity is wrong, go for wisdom. And they're often, um, you'll find lists where you'll see them. Yeah. Just for a trick for if you ever actually have to take an exam in it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we've, we, we have three more we need. Loving kindness? Was that mentioned already? No, loving kindness wasn't mentioned. It's also a good quality, but it's not in this particular list. Mm-hmm. But these are really good ones to guess. Effort, yes, yes. Okay, so now that's five. We need two more. Love and no, eleven kindness isn't in this list, although it's a good quality. Seven factors of enlightenment. What do you need to awaken? What supports enlightenment? Good. Okay. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. We only one more. Detachment is also a really good, do was he said, good quality, but not in this list. Determination. Determination, that, that, that's classified with the effort. Mm-hmm. It's sometimes translated as determination, perseverance, effort, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll let you know, investigation, mm-hmm. investigation of states, but you did pretty good, you got six of them, six out of the seven. Now, Four Noble Truths, how many people have heard a talk on the Four Noble Truths? <laughs> yes, okay. First noble truth. This I want in order. There is suffering. There is suffering. Okay. Two. Hmm? Well, that's the third. We're going to go in order, so we'll come back to that. What's the second? The cause of suffering is? Clinging. The cause of suffering is craving. The third. There is an end to suffering. End to suffering. Thank goodness. And the fourth. And what's the end of the suffering? Ah, the way to the end. The end of suffering is the ending of clinging. That's the third notebook. That's part of the third. The end of suffering is the ending of clinging. Yeah. And the way to the end of suffering is the Four Noble Truths. Is, is, I mean, is the Eightfold Path, which is the fourth. So you, you're, you're fine on these lists. You're fine. If you, if you had no clue as to what we were talking about, don't worry. After you listen for a while, they start to come. There's a, there's a value. The reason I wanted to go through the list is there is a value for actually knowing these over time. Now, if you've just started your practice in the last few months, this may sound like a bit of gobbledygook or doctrine, then don't worry about it. But those of you that have been coming regularly um, and want to really understand this fourth foundation of mindfulness It asks us to actually know these lists, to work consciously with these hindering forces and the the factors that support awakening, and to understand suffering, its cause, its end, and the way. So we work very consciously with these lists in this last foundation. This way they're not just intellectual structures that we memorize or that we say we understand, or we recite, but it's a tool for contemplating the Dhamma in the Dhamma. We know it through our experience. So that the, um, the experience of one of the enlightenment factors isn't a conceptual thing, oh yeah, I know that enlightenment factor, but we know it directly as an enlightenment factor, as something that supports our awakening, something that's a spiritual ally. We know what arises. We know what passes. Sights, sounds, smells, tastes, touches, thoughts. We know them directly, and we know their function and their context. Mindfulness is all about a penetrative understanding. It's a non-superficial quality. If Whichever foundation of mindfulness we're working with, mindfulness of body, feeling, um, mind, and Dhammas, mindfulness goes right into the heart of the matter to experience with clarity. So in this we're experiencing the function of the mind and the body. We're experiencing the function of perception with clarity. When we have an experience, say just of hearing or seeing or tasting, a very simple experience, in the first foundation we might just note hearing and know that we're hearing. But in this In this foundation, we extend that to know the context of hearing, so that we orient to the sound, not just as a sound that arises and passes, but we understand how it occurs in the mind such that does that perception lead to suffering? Is it affected by craving, clinging? Is it an experience of hearing something that I like? In which case, it isn't just a moment of hearing and liking. It's second noble truth, craving. And also we understand the way of release. So whenever we experience attachment, we also can experience the detachment. Without some sense of this Fourth fourth Noble Truth, and I think many of us do it intuitively, and so we don't separate it out as a conscious part of our practice, but we are doing it intuitively. Without that, it can almost feel like we're just bombarded by sensory contact one thing after another, after another, without quite being able to sense what it all means, what its significance is, how it it has the potential to free the heart. When you experience, say, anger or a strong hindrance, sometimes we just note, when we're working with it um, sort of casually, we might just know I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry, I'm angry. And that's kind of one level of mindfulness which is valuable. It takes the understanding to another level when we know this is the hindrance of, of anger. We recognize its hindering power. Now, it may not change the anger, but it contextualizes it within our meditative experience, within our contemplation, so that we are mindful not just of the particular feeling of anger, how it's hot and contracted and causes this thought and that thought and changes into this and changes into that, but we're aware of its function, its pattern, and how it works within us, what it arises from and what it further conditions in our mind. How does it operate as a hindrance? In this way, what we learn from one hindrance gets automatically applied to all the other hindrances. What we learn about one spiritual faculty, such as um, investigation or effort, we can then transfer to the other other, uh, factors of enlightenment. I appreciate this uh, foundation of mindfulness because too often these lists become something intellectual, like we're supposed to believe them, we're supposed to memorize them, learn them and believe them. But this is within the context of practice. We're, we don't need, to, mem- we don't need to, um, to memorize and believe these lists. But if we, if we memorize them enough to retain them, we can practice them. And that's what this um, Foundation is often asking us to do. They're ways of experientially encountering our lives within the context of dhamma, within the context of what leads to suffering and what leads to liberation. Now, the Satipatthana, the Mahasatipatthana Sutta, asks, um, gives a, a sort of a more detailed approach. In particular, it specifies how to work with the five hindrances, because we don't just, and, and, we don't just um, notice the arising of anger, the arising of desire, and these various things sloth and torpor. But we examine each four five characteristics. We look for the presence of it, and we look for its absence. So this we did with the third foundation of mindfulness, so that's familiar. We also look for the cause of its arising, the way of abandoning, and the way for the non-arising of it in the future being mindful of one of the hindrances as a hindering force is broader than just noticing anger has arisen. We would notice its presence, its absence, that we'd notice and understand what the cause of its arising is, the way of its abandoning, and the way for the non-arising of it in the future. It's quite a bit more expansive. It asks us for a quality of mindful that is not just the direct perception of what is there in that split second, but it asks for a quality of sati, of mindfulness, that is a reflective, that is recollecting, that is putting the pieces of experience together in a way that is useful. For example, the, um, the Mahasati Patana Sutta says this um, in working with desire. Here, One abides contemplating mind objects as mind objects in respect of the five hindrances. How does he do so? Here monks, if sensual desire is present in himself, a monk knows that it is present. If sensual desire is absent in himself, a monk knows that it is absent. And he knows how unarisen sensual desire comes to arise. And he knows how the abandonment of arisen sensual desire comes about. And he knows how the non-arising of the abandoned sensual desire in the future will come about. And then it goes through all the various lists with the same structure of five, of five things. Do you get how it's just quite a bit broader? It's not thinking about it. It's still working through the foundations of mindfulness, which asks for a direct, penetrative, non-superficial encounter with things. And yet there's this comprehension These represent instructions that are intended for us to apply right to our immediate perception. It's one of the treasures of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, so that we're not just feeling these things as they arise and pass, but we're really understanding their effect on us. We're not just having an isolated experience of the sense bases or the aggregates, but in every encounter we're experiencing that systematic intertwining of the mind and the body in in a moment of experience. And most especially we're cultivating the capacity to let the attention rest on the flow from suffering to the end of suffering. When we really work with with the Four Noble Truths, this is really not something to believe. It's not some doctrine laid out in books. It's something that we experience in a direct experience of the senses or of the mind. Too often, I think, people don't ref- use the Four Foundations of Mindfulness, uh, I mean, don't use the the, the um, Four Noble Truths, suffering and the end of suffering, in conjunction with mindfulness. And it may not be until one goes into an interview that one even reflects on how something is functioning as one of the... Um, as the cause of suffering or the end of suffering. Sometimes when we're in pain, we are so absorbed in the pain, or if we bring mindfulness to it, we just note tingling, pressure, coolness, heat, and go right for the, those, those momentary experiences. But another way of being mindful of pain is to know, I'm being mindful of the second foundation, of, or the first foundation, the first noble truth. I'm getting my lists confused. This is the first noble truth. This is suffering. It's quite amazing sometimes to pull just a little bit back when we're in pain and to know this is the first noble truth. It recontextualizes our whole experience to that pain. So often people misuse mindfulness techniques, thinking if I'm mindful of the pain, it will go away. Well, the first noble truth doesn't go away. When we're mindful of the First Noble Truth, when we're mindful that there is suffering, what happens is that we understand it. We understand the truth of suffering. If we could be mindful of our pain from the perspective of understanding the truth of suffering, imagine how different that is than noting pain in order to make it go away, or with aversion, or to just grit our teeth and get through it, or to see it, you know, somehow waiting for it to dissolve but to just rest in a clear perception of this manifestation of the truth of suffering also when there's a moment of letting go to let the attention rest and to be mindful that this is an experience of the end of craving even if it lasts for just a second it's still an experience of that third noble truth Can we catch that? Can we rest in that? Can we experience that moment of release as something significant in the path? Not just looking back later and said, Oh, I had a great moment of letting go, I have to tell you about. But in that moment, feel it with mindfulness. Be present for its context and its significance. When we have these kinds of um, moments of clear seeing, in our practice, this insight can register very deeply. Sometimes it's even difficult to articulate. It may sound like we're working with a list, but sometimes these are so profound and so deep that they have um, uh, repercussions throughout our practice of really understanding how suffering is caused and really understanding how release occurs. The Buddha's teaching is exquisitely beautiful when practiced. It was just never meant as a theory to admire from afar. This fourth foundation of mindfulness asks us to live the Dhamma, to live the teachings, to find it manifesting in our moment-to-moment experience so that we don't use any of the other foundations of mindfulness to separate from the contextualized understanding of our interactive experience of mind and body, suffering, and the end of suffering. So these four foundations of mindfulness, mindfulness of body, mindfulness of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral states, mindfulness of mental states, and how they're affected by desire, hate, and delusion, and mindfulness of dhammas, the contextualized experience, is practiced for the very simple possibility of freeing the mind from suffering. As the Buddha said in the Satipatthana Sutta, we practice mindfulness to abide independent, not clinging to anything in the world. In a practical sense, we develop mindfulness to whatever extent is necessary for understanding and clear awareness. It's not about being mindful 24-7, in such and such a degree, all the time, to this object, that object, this object, that that object. It's really about sensing what is needed, what quality of mindfulness, what precision of mindfulness, what quality of this observing power, this attention, is needed to to understand suffering and to free the mind from the causes of suffering. To reveal the wisdom of non-grasping and to know the capacity that we have to release. This is the intimacy of liberation that occurs through mindfulness. Our consciousness may sometimes be with bodily experiences, with sensations, with the posture, with the 32 parts. Our consciousness might sometimes be responding to the pleasant, unpleasantness and neutrality of our feelings. Our consciousness might sometimes rest with mental states, emotions, thoughts, moods, and how those mental states are affected by these underlying tendencies of greed, hate and delusion. And our consciousness might sometimes be resting with the what's called the mental objects, or the dhammas, or the contextualized experience that occurs as we encounter life. The whole structure of the Four Foundations of Mindfulness is quite a comprehensive structure for our practice. It's quite a profound realm for contemplation. And at any moment in your practice, I don't know that it matters so much which foundation you focus on at any particular time, I think we can trust our intuition, see what's arising and what helps us stay most mindful. It's not something that we trod through like a sequence, like for the first five minutes of the sitting I'm going to be with the first foundation and then I'm going to shift to the second. This isn't a a system that works in that way. What is essential is the um, the, um, embracing of mindfulness and the depth and the capacity that that has for us for awakening. And then we can use our intuition to sense where consciousness tends to incline. Right now, is it inclining more towards a bodily experience? Is it inclining more towards a mental experience? Is it perceiving the context of things with clear comprehension? And what is needed to awaken? I have several questions for you, but before I ask questions of you, maybe I'll give you a chance to ask any clarifying questions of me. Please. Yeah, so if you find one of those uh, ways of practicing mindfulness is more difficult for you. Um, is it helpful to try to do it more or, or should you just kind of like you said how you know it works. You know, it really varies. I I follow in I follow the power of interest a lot in my practice because I feel like I'm in this for the long haul, and it doesn't really matter to me if during one period of my practice I'm focused in one way. I kind of trust that things kind of swing around and then something else is appropriate. I would instead notice if I was avoiding something, and then I might go for it, because I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want to um, entertain the avoidance. That's different than just being a, um, interested in another aspect or finding that maybe, say, maybe the third foundation of mindfulness it seems a little slippery and the attention doesn't really stay with those mental states, but the first foundation is very clear. Well, if there isn't a sense of fear of the, or avoidance, I would just stay with the first foundation and strengthen it then, but trust that at some point the mind will, ha- will include all of these. Um, we were reading a beautiful sutta in the Numbered Discourses course that started earlier this week and one of the suttas was on, the, on being mindful of the body and it took just the first foundation and encouraged mindfulness of the body all the way to Nibbana because within any of the foundations of mindfulness the others aren't excluded it will end up, it will end up sort of uh, being embraced so, I'm not into forcing any particular anything in practice. I would only be aware if there was strong resistance or of holding away, and then maybe ease my way into it, or find some way of becoming curious about it. Um, unless it was something that I, you know, like, if you've been practicing for, say, um, a dozen years, and have never worked with one of the foundations of mindfulness, then I'd say it's about time. But, you know, if you want to spend two or three or four or five years focusing in any particular way, more power to you. I mean, that kind of concentration is is wonderful. I don't know if that helped at all, Any other questions? This can be a complicated Fourth Foundation. All totally clear, Doug. Yes. So which list I choose, will I take it as the personal truth, or as a form plot, uh, or... That's also... Anyone you want. What, what, what's beautiful about the lists is that um, every list expands us from one particular thing. Um, for instance, some people get all into mindfulness. But I've never heard of the Fourth Foundations of Mindfulness. So they practice mindfulness, practice mindfulness, practice mindfulness. And maybe without much instruction are just focusing on something very narrow. And over time, a kind of a fixation can occur. And the concept of mindfulness gets much more narrow than it actually is. When you learn about the Fourth Foundations, I hope this month has included everything. If we've missed something that you've experienced that isn't included in this realm of mindfulness, please come up afterwards and tell me, and we'll either find a place that it fits in, in this or we'll make a fifth foundation. Because the essence of it, but some people will hear that initial instruction and over time just think mindfulness is about this little tingle at the nostrils. I mean, that happens. So the list structured in the doctrine helps expand that natural tendency for the mind to grasp and to fixate. Sometimes people will um, keep feeling one hindrance again and again, and not open the consciousness to experience the range of hindrances. Very often there's an interaction of hindrances. Often it's not just, say, somebody's frustrated and they're noting it as anger, anger, anger. Well, there could be a lot of restlessness underneath that. There could be a lot of doubt festering. And the hindrances, as, by, by being aware of it as a hindering force, we see it functioning and we see it in a context of other hindrances. So we see then how all of the hindrances affect the mind. Sometimes we're, we, we, we are just saying that we're perceiving something. But when we break down those... Um, the the five aggregates into form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. It's not that any one of those happens without the other. They all happen in a moment of experience. But it teases out the process of perception in a fuller way, so that we can be aware of what our relationship is to consciousness, what our relationship is to, um, to feeling, what our relationship is to perception. And what's the distinction? Is there any place that gets a little stickier for us? where clinging comes in more. The, fa- the enlightenment factors are a fantastic one to see how very often people will be aligned with maybe one particular factor. Say they, um, say they really like investigating, but the, and, and go for it, go for it, go for it, go for it, or really like effort, and go for it, go for it, or really like bliss, and go for it, go for it. But the Enlightenment factors, when you, when you recognize that you're working with an Enlightenment factor, you then start to work the whole system because you have to balance them. You know, in that system there are three arousing ones and three stabilizing ones, and they balance. It's when all the factors of Enlightenment are bright and in balance that the mind is most conducive to awakening. It's not about choosing a favorite and strengthening it to the nth degree. Too often, we fo- the, the human mind understands one thing, gets it, gets a value for it, and then builds a lot on that one thing. I mean, whole schools of thought can be narrowed down to one particular insight or something. And every time I work with the list, and one of the reasons I like to set them to memory, um, was because every time it asks me to consider to open wider. To open wider. Not to just work with that One that I was interested in. So, my mind has very strong tendency towards investigation. It's one of my favorite factors of enlightenment. It's just the, it's just the inclination. So, you know, when I'm working with that factor and I feel it arising, and I'm mindful of the factor of investigation arising, and I'm mindful of it as a factor of enlightenment, then I shift almost a sense of of it functioning as a factor of enlightenment, which brings, usually there's another factor of enlightenment that I haven't given any attention to at all, that I kind of forgot existed. And just that simple reflection of knowing the list brings that up, and it broadens experience, and the key part of that is it releases the fixation on that one factor. So I'm not narrowing the Dhamma into my favorite thing. Part of why I like to teach from lists is it would be too easy as a teacher to just give you my favorite five or six factors and then build a whole teaching on that. And the Buddha very carefully didn't do that. He kept taking comprehensive things and making the lists and opening it out. And then it just is very, very full that way. Did that respond? Or did I just get off on the subject, please? Oh, come up afterwards and you can copy them. But also I can also um, tell you, there's, well, there's a bunch of books. Um, the, one of my favorite books for the lists is Christopher Titmuss' um, Light on Enlightenment, because it gives very brief chapters on all, the, on, on all the primary lists. And they're very easy. It's easy to read. I think on the and website. And I don't know exactly what Oh, site, good. You can get the list. That's good, yeah. Please. You know, we talk a lot about um, through understanding the hope is that certain things won't arise again. So, for example, desire is a hindrance. Um, is the hope that uh, desire will not arise or that it will not arise in its hindrance uh, element? And uh, what's the difference there? Okay, it's not the hope. And the way, so. and it, it's it's phrased. And the way for the non-arising of it in the future. The yes, the fifth one is the and it's um, the presence, the absence, the cause for its arising, and the way of abandoning. So those are all very practical, like kind of bits right in the moment. It's really interesting to me that there's the fifth one, which is, and the way for the non-arising of it in the future. Now, if it was a hope, there's not a lot about hope in the, Buddhist, in the Buddhist teaching. I don't think there's even any Pali word that translates as hope. Do you think there is? I don't think I've seen it in any text. This is the way. It's asking us to actually consider, to put together what we're seeing in that moment. It's not thinking in an analytical way. It's more like a momentary analytical way, it's like the mind just quickly puts those pieces together of how can it, what, what does this depend upon and how might it not arise in the future. So there's a way. For, for hindrances and these factors to arise, there are causes. Nothing arises without a cause. So we need to see what's bringing that cause, and if it's a factor that we don't want to support in our lives then to see in the moment, moment of experience how this might not arise and it's usually finding its cause and cutting it let me, let me ask that a different way is it the way of non-arising of desire period or desire and it's hindering oh these are all hindering forces these are all hindering forces the these hindering, hindering, hindering capacity the hindering yeah. capacity of well, you know, you'd have to, we could have an analog argument whether there was desire that wasn't a hindrance at some level. Um, but. Um, sorry for hmm. Actually, chanda is not considered a hindrance at all. Yeah. Yeah. Tanha, if there's the thirst, the craving, would always be a hindrance. But you're right, if it's chanda, it's a different. Two words are translated as desire. Chanda, which is um, quite ethically neutral, and that could be the desire for enlightenment. It could be the, the will to practice. Um, sometimes it's translated as aspiration or will rather than desire, but most commonly it's translated as desire. And then Tanha, which is desire, which is affected by craving or thirsting for. Yeah. Now I have some questions for you. Did you take one more question? Oh, okay. Um, I'm never. How could I begin to investigate causes? This is a new concept. Ah, just be curious. I guarantee you nothing arises without a cause. But they just seem to be like bubbles that just pop up. Yes. But they're not? Just be curious. Because you don't want to start figuring it out or you don't want to have an answer. It was caused by this and now I'm going to imagine that I'm seeing that. Just in that moment of experiencing the arising of something, be curious what um, was the cause for that arising. Just be curious. Just bring mindfulness and interest to that moment of the arising of the hindrance. Even if I have no idea. Better if you have no idea. How can it be an investigation if you already know what you're going to find? that's okay, then just go back to the next breath or the next experience. This happens that fast. If you haven't, then just go on to the next thing. And then go on to the next thing. It's, it's, as, quick as, it's, it's as quick as a moment of mindfulness. So don't like, belabor it. But it is it does expand the experience of the hindrance rather than, I mean, really, I've had so many students come in and say that they've noted anger 500 times. And of course there's just anger, 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 and there's a lot of aversion in it. But if the mind just expands with a little bit of interest to see the function of the anger as a hindering force, one's whole relationship to that observation changes. And what often happens is in that moment when we free the mind from the anger, we're actually freeing it from all of the hindering forces all at once, because we're seeing the cause of the arising. So enjoy that not knowing that's not a um, that's not a hindrance if you can bring if you can bring curiosity and freshness to be oh what could this be what could have give, what could give it and it's not like a story from the past it'll be some form of of, of, of way that you're relating to the experience something within it won't be because somebody said that 2 weeks ago it's not it won't be in a story I want to ask you a couple of questions in these last few minutes. Um, I'd like you to reflect for a moment in what conditions you find it most easy to be mindful. And in what conditions do you find it most challenging to be mindful, where you tend to lose your mindfulness? Okay, and I want to hear some. Just quickly. Well, um, oh, tell me first, let's just hear the ones that, that, are, that are... Which one were you going to say? I was going to do the combination. Okay, we'll go but for combination. It works in context for me. Okay, go ahead. That, um, and I was thinking particularly about the question of seeing the arising of states. I mean, trying to catch that moment. And it seems to me that being on retreat is the excellent environment, for me at least, notice this because my mind there's so little happening and my mind slows down so much that it's potentially at least possible to catch that moment yeah. as it arises whereas if I'm really rushing really trying to get something happening have a lot of pressures you know the, someone's knocking at the door the phone's are ringing and the pot is boiling over I'm not going to notice that I'm feeling a little agitated perhaps yeah Yeah, okay, great. So, did everybody hear that? Yeah, okay. Um, Because the conditions of retreat, then knowing that conditions of retreat support mindfulness, that would encourage one to attend retreats. Knowing that the pressures of doing several things all at once, telephone this and that and this, might ask one to consider how you structured your day, and whether that is actually necessary in just a condition of life, or whether it's a little excessive. I mean, sometimes we have the, the, the telephone on us, like, all the time. Do we actually need that? Maybe you do. Some, some professions, some people with children need that, but maybe we don't. So the, it asks us to consider what causes that agitation and what supports the mindfulness so that we can consider that. What else? What, what, what did you... Anything? So which is, which is easier to be mindful of? The strong sensations are easier to be mindful of. Okay, great. Um, it's not always the case. Some people would say the reverse. It just really depends upon, the, it just depends upon the person. But if you know that strong sensations are easier to be mindful of, you might choose a very clear sensation to begin your meditation practice. You might work with touch points or you might just tune into whatever is strongest in your body. And then as the mindfulness refines, then go to the subtler sensations. You might, If you know that that works for you, then you might not just say that breath is very subtle for you. You might not start there in your practice. You might work to that. What else? I have, I have to my mind to the mindfulness. So, you know, I have a particular sound in my house, and if I don't tell myself, be careful I don't believe that you have to turn them off. I won't turn them off. Okay. This is really important. It's not a small thing. It's not a small thing because it describes the clarity of intention. Really having a very clear intention for yourself, and knowing that having a clear intention supports mindfulness. Again, you would do things, put signs around your house. You would remind yourself in key places. You would, before going into a difficult situation, you would clarify your intention. Before, um, um, before at the beginning of a meditation practice, you wouldn't just plunk yourself down. Yeah, throughout the day. Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't for anybody. And to notice that means that you then support your mindfulness with the clarity of intention. Excellent. Please. I'm always most mindful in my garden. Ah, okay. What what about the garden supports that mindfulness? Well, it's a lot. i love okay. to see how it's changed from one day to the next. Ah, okay. So, so I'm more Okay, beautiful. So observing change could also be something that you would then carry that change. And that, whether it's growth or decay, because both happen in the garden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, um, and just observing sort of that factor that, 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 you, that you connect with so clearly in the garden. You can notice the change and decay of things in the kitchen. Which is close to food, so it's close to growth. You can also notice the change and decay of things in the refrigerator. <laughs> you can notice it in the body. Then you could, yeah, you could take it into the body and notice how your body changes throughout a day. Um, how um, how the, the the taste in your mouth changes throughout a day. How the 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 feeling of the hair changes from the moment that you wake up in the morning to how it feels when you comb it to after it gets tangled and and just noticing change could be a theme that then carries you because there's interest for that. See, it's again using the power of interest. Okay, I have one other question and then I'll let you go. The other thing changes for me is uh, if it's a Monday I do my mind tells me I'm supposed to do different things but on the weekends every day of the week, my mind tells me what I'm interested in doing, and what I should be doing, like my routine. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and if it's Friday or it's Sunday, I, my mind uh, it's my tells me, oh, you're not supposed to work that way, you're today. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay, okay. But see, now, actually, there's something in this, too, where we can use, we can notice how, um, how we... Um, how our routine structures our life, and also how um, and then we can consider how does how could we construct a routine that supported our spiritual lives because some people do create a routine in their life that really supports their spiritual life that includes a time for meditation that includes a place for meditation that includes sort of moments of downtime throughout the day you know uh, that structures their retreats well in advance before the calendar gets all filled up and responsibilities. Um, So that, again, just noticing that, we can then consider, is that something that's supporting our awakening or is it supporting the the hindrances? And then we can look at the routine in our lives. Well, I guess I'll just have to ask you these questions another time. Let's just sit for a few moments together. Let that step. Thank you. May all beings live with mindfulness and clear comprehension. May all beings live with joy, happiness, and peace. May all beings awaken to the true nature of things and experience Nibbana free of all suffering. Thank you all for your attention and for coming this last month or this last evening, whatever you've been here for. Um, The next time I'll be teaching um, here will be in, um, in December. I'll be teaching in New Mexico a series of retreats in September, and then I'll be teaching a series of retreats in Israel in October and November. So I'll be back here one Sunday. In December, so I hope you'll um, I hope to see you then, and do periodically check my website. In between these various trips, I will be doing things here and there, Um, and you can check those out at um, at www.bodie-retreats.org. So um, I just, as my schedule develops, I just sort of put them up there, and hope to see you around. Thank you.